BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. The big story of the week, possibly of the month, really, is kind of the Elon Musk attempt to initiate this, what seems like a hostile takeover of Twitter. The tech issue, obviously, is an issue I've written a lot about over the years, have a lot of thoughts on what's going on there at Twitter. We want to talk about that. Also want to talk about the latest from Russia and Ukraine. You know, if you'll recall, we did a special episode on that towards the beginning of the conflict. I think it's worth coming back to that. I have some thoughts as to how this thing might come to an end there. But before we get to those topics, what's really, really, really kind of bothering me, and I wrote my my most recent column about this. You know, look, I grew up in the New York area, okay? I didn't grow up in the city. I I grew up in the suburbs, but I have spent so much time in New York City over the years. I have a brother who lives in Manhattan. I have so many friends who live in Manhattan. And, you know, growing up, I, I, I was born in 1989, okay? So I grew up in the 1990s into, you know, into the early 2000s, you know, under the mayorships of Rudy Giuliani, lean to, to Mike Bloomberg. New York City under that time was a very, very safe place to live. There have been many studies done on this. It was a famously safe place to live, actually, as far as big cities are concerned. It was really kind of known as really the national, possibly even an international standard bearer as to what a big city could do as far as kind of the, the the police protection, you know, minimizing the homeless problem, the drugs, the sex trafficking, all the general things that tend to afflict big urban populations. New York, over the course of 15, 20 years, really, did a very, very good job of cracking down on all of that. You know, New York back in the 60s and 70s, was totally the opposite. Times Square was known as a place where you could pretty, you know, pretty easily get your call girl from the hotel, prostitution rings, gun trafficking, all that. But that really kind of started to change in the 90s and 2000s. And for that reason, it is for that reason that I think a lot of people who grew up in the New York area in particular, who are remotely sober minded about what is going on, who are paying even a modicum of attention to what is going on, who are not trapped in some sort of left-wing kind of MSNBC, New York Times editorial board echo chamber. We're able to kind of look at the mayorship of Bill de Blasio, who of course is no longer the mayor of New York City, but he served two terms, and look at the policies that he implemented, perhaps most notably, of course, his famously fraught, to put it mildly, relationship with the NYPD. Of course, years ago, there was this outrageous um, episode, of course, where Bill de Blasio failed to stand or failed to defend kind of the the honor of NYP uh, after an officer was shot. There were these these harrowing images, really kind of set, set a chill up your spine, these images of this police funeral where NYPD literally turns around 180 degrees. The officers turned their back on Mayor de Blasio and crime started to escalate. Crime really started to escalate in New York City. And there was this famous uh, bail reform law that kind of came into place in New York City and really kind of New York State, actually. It was the end of 2019, early 2020. The New York Post had these had a series of write-ups on kind of the 
ridiculous consequences of this wholly misinformed and really kind of misanthropic, frankly, piece of legislation. There were all these kind of anecdotal episodes of how someone was put out on bail like the day after a mugging or robbery only to commit the exact same offense the day or two afterwards. And I think a lot of people wanted to look to the new incoming mayor, Eric Adams, who was a Democrat, but he, you know, he's a former NYPD officer himself. I think kind of the the general thought, the general consensus amongst people living there in New York was that this would be a step in the right direction. Well, you know, look, it didn't take very long, tragically. This, you know, these are not fun things to have to say, but we do have to say it. It didn't take very long into Mayor Eric Adams's mayorship for the worst act of carnage in the history of the New York City subway system to unfold. So, uh, you know, as anyone who pays any attention to the news cycle knows, that happened, of course, just last week. There was a black nationalist. By the way, that's another angle of this story, by the way, is the under-prosecution of black nationalists. You know, we rightfully hear you know, about the need to kind of crack down on, you know, literal neo-Nazis who, you know, I, 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 as a percent of the population are infinitesimal. But there are, of course, black nationalists as well. I mean, if you go back to the end of 2019, there were these two anti-Semitic incidents. One was in Jersey City, New Jersey. There's a kosher supermarket that was shot up. The other, of course, was this ridiculous black nationalist, probably a Black Panther type who took a machete into a Hanukkah gathering in Muncie, New York, basically right across the river from where I grew up, actually. So that's actually another angle of this story, by the way, is that the guy who committed this atrocity on the subway last week in New York is actually a black nationalist. And it is is disgusting, frankly. It is literally disgusting that after an episode of this nature, that we who are sane kind of colorblind citizens who don't play the intersectional Olympics game that the left likes to play, is insane that we find ourselves basically thinking, oh, is it going to be like a neo-Nazi? Like in that place, the media will make this the biggest story of the year. Or on the other hand, is it going to be a Muslim or a black nationalist, in which case the story will mysteriously disappear overnight? That is, it's really appalling that we have to play that game. And obviously it's appalling that the media, on the other hand, plays that game. Of course, you know, MSNBC, large swaths of the corporate media, CNN, the New York Times, they all play this game. And Sure enough, the man who committed this shooting in Brooklyn, New York, last Tuesday, that left 10 people with gunshot wounds and 19 others injured in kind of the resulting mayhem. It was was in in a subway car in in Brooklyn. He was a black nationalist. And, you know, to put it mildly, that's kind of where I'm going here, to put it mildly, this man was known to the authorities. He did not come out of nowhere. Frank James did not just wake up one morning with no paper trail, with no track record whatsoever, and decide to go down, take a flight of stairs or an elevator down to the New York City subway and just start shooting at people. He had a YouTube page where he would rant over and over again about how much he hated white people, about the need to kind of commit violence. He even talked about about mass shootings themselves. But it wasn't even just his YouTube page. Frank James's rap sheet, his previous arrest, his criminal record was an appalling, an appalling record. He had nine previous arrests in New York State alone. A criminal sex act, possession of burglary tools, theft of service, some of the many offenses that he was previously arrested for. Again, you can only understand this in terms of this general culture of leniency 
for criminals, of kind of sympathy for criminals. Uh, you know, these these specific offenses go well back before the bail reform law I mentioned to, but it's still kind of part of this culture of leniency. It wasn't just New York, though. Frank James had three additional arrests in New Jersey for trespass, larceny, and disorderly conduct. In fact, there was actually a charge for a terroristic threat that kind of emanated from one of those arrests right across the river there in the Garden State of New Jersey. The point here is that this man should not have been on the streets, okay? He should have been far, far removed from society at this point. He should have been behind bars. He should have been locked up. The problem is, and I kind of alluded to this earlier with the the bail reform law in New York, a horrific piece of legislation. The problem is that there has been a bipartisan at this point, a total across the political spectrum, bipartisan fetishization of the criminal, of the victim, at the expense of the law-abiding, at the expense of the safety, security, prosperity, and communal integrity of the people in this country who abide by the laws, who stop at a traffic light when it is red, who let pedestrians cross amicably, who don't go down to subways and just start shooting crap up. But this has happened now across the span of decades. Again, America in general, really kind of starting in the Reagan administration, going into the Clinton administration, into kind of the first term of the Bush 43 presidency. So we're talking here about a 20-year stretch. Violent crime rates in America really dropped. You know, kind of a, a, a hardcore kind of law and order platform, more kind of mandatory minimum sentences, things like that, was a part of the so-called Reagan revolution when Reagan was swept into office in 1980. This started to get to the point where I think people on the left and some libertarian-leaning folks in particular on the right, that it would later spread to kind of more people on the right, to kind of more just fiscally conservative people in general, I guess you would say. Crime rates eventually got so low that I think a lot of people across the spectrum, from kind of the George Soros left to the Koch brothers-affiliated right, start looking at the status quo And they said, well, you know what? Why are we spending so much money? Why are we spending so much money on locking bad people up, on funding the police to this nth degree, things like that, when crime rates are this low? And so by the end of the 2000s, by the end of kind of George W. Bush's second term, certainly into kind of Barack Obama's first term and really accelerating, I would argue, over the past decade or so, you saw the rise of the bipartisan, quote unquote, criminal justice reform movement. Now, the criminal justice reform movement kind of has a few kind of slogans attached to it, right? But it is the basic idea here is that we have a, quote unquote, over incarceration problem in America, that there are way too many people locked up, that America locks up a far higher percentage of people than any other country around the world. And the idea here is born kind of philosophically speaking, intellectually, or really kind of psychologically speaking, you might say. It psychologically kind of comes downstream of this pro-criminal sentiment. 
This is nothing new, obviously, in kind of left-leaning circles in particular. If you kind of go back to kind of, you know, the old days of the ACLU, back when the ACLU was still liberal before it had turned far left into becoming kind of the, the bastion of modern illiberal progressivism that it is today, back when the ACLU was still liberal, you know, it would stand all the time, obviously, with criminals who were accused. It was kind of adamantly pro-due process. You still see some remnants of that today, you know, folks like Alan Dershowitz, this kind of older school kind of pro-defendant kind of criminal sympathizing mindset was already prevalent on the left, but it really started to accelerate on the right around this time period as well. So I think it's worth kind of unpacking that. Let's dive in a little further into where this is coming from and from my perspective, some of the damage that this has done all across America. But let's get to a quick commercial break. So stay with us. This is The Josh Hammer Show. We'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So this mentality did accelerate on the left. It was kind of already there, as we indicated, but it definitely, definitely, definitely accelerated on the right. So much so that I remember when Rick Perry was governor of Texas, you know, Texas for a long time has been kind of the iconic red state query, whether it or Florida is at the present time. They clearly are the two most uh, prominent red states. But at the time that a lot of people across the country were looking to Texas as like a model of red state governorship, Governor Perry accepted large swaths of the so-called right on crime agenda from the Texas Public Policy Foundation, TPPF, which is an Austin, Texas based right of center public policy organization, which for the record, I think mostly does fantastic work. But the right on crime initiative kind of adopted whole hog the notion that America has an over incarceration problem and that we should be looking to kind of, you know, reduce back end sentencing. Uh, at a bare minimum, ideally kind of just, you know, decriminalize more offenses at maximum, things of that nature. And, and this mentality, I, I, I do think it, to a large extent it started um, in Texas and maybe some like-minded kind of state-level think tanks, but it definitely kind of ultimately trickled up to the national level. I remember my first year of law school summer, I, on a personal level, I was interning for Senator Mike Lee of Utah, actually. I was interning on Senator Mike Lee's Judiciary Committee staff. And at the time, we were talking about quote unquote, criminal justice reform. And, you know, Senator Lee, who um, is, is, is a brilliant, brilliant man, just a wonderful public servant as well. But I, I disagree with him on this issue. He, he, at least at the time, I don't know where he is now, at the time, he was very sympathetic to these efforts because there obviously is kind of a fiscal conservative kind of budget slashing argument to be had for the idea that we incarcerate a lot of people. I mean, like, and again, as a percentage of the population, we do incarcerate a high percentage of any other country in the world here. It's not that's that's coming out of nowhere. The problem is that America is also one of the most violent countries in the world. And we can discuss why that is. I mean, you know, some people will blame it on, especially in the left, will blame it on kind of our gun culture and we have too many guns. But if you look at the actual rates of property violence and kind of just violent crime more broadly, actually, if you kind of if you, if you compare those rates in the U.S. versus kind of Western Europe and other Western style democracies, 
America is order of magnitudes higher. So that so the notion that we have that we lock up too many people, it's not coming from nowhere. But nonetheless, this mentality did trickle up all the way to the federal level. And, you know, in 2018, towards the end of 2018, President Trump actually, of all people, signed into law Congress's First Step Act, which was exactly that. It was a federal level criminal justice reform law that kind of reduced a lot of sentences. It kind of it, it, it resulted in, you know, what I, Daniel Horowitz, who's a former guest on this podcast and a lot of others have referred to as jailbreak. We refer to this kind of phenomenon of wanting to free offenders as jailbreak. So at this point, this mentality is really kind of firmly entrenched. But it, again, it doesn't take anyone who needs to look at the, you don't need a PhD in criminology to notice that in the aftermath, obviously, of the COVID lockdowns and the killing of George Floyd in May 2020 and the 1619 riots that, that, that ensued that summer, crime in America is on the rise again. It is very, very, very much on the rise again. New York City is ground zero of this. Lots of blue cities, by the way, are ground zero of this. San Francisco, Los Angeles. Have y'all seen the vandalisms that are happening in downtown San Francisco right now? Like the outright looting of stores, the smashing of windows. You know, I was talking to someone a year ago, kind of like a wealthy businessman type guy who lives, I think I, I think it was in the Upper West Side, Upper East Side, I don't know, somewhere there in Manhattan. He was telling me that he had a conversation with, with, with his local district attorney, the local prosecutor. By the way, Soros funds a lot of these local prosecutors. It's especially a problem, I think, in California, but it's, but it's a national problem as well. These kind of anti-prosecution prosecutors. I mean, tell me how that's not, you know, an oxymoron. But this guy I was talking to in Manhattan was telling me that he had talked with the local district attorney and they basically said that when there was a when there's a, a a theft when there's when there's a larceny at the local like CVS pharmacy or whatever they simply will not do anything if like $150 or less is stolen in goods well what kind of message does that send to store owners what kind of message does that send to a business that is looking to potentially move in to an environment and you couple that obviously with some of, of, of the anti-police kind of cop-hindering policies that cities like New York have done in recent years. I'm thinking here about kind of the, the end of, or, or at least the, the, the precipitous decline of broken windows policing, which was a theory of policing that kind of picked up steam during the Giuliani and Bloomberg mayorships. Really, 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 I think it's one of the policies most really, really most responsible for the Giuliani-Bloomberg-era drop in violent crime was kind of this idea of broken windows policing, which is where when you see something like broken windows or something that's kind of like a petty crime, you have to start there. You can't just only focus on the top level crime that the, the entire kind of integrity of the police force of the rule of law in general starts with prosecuting these lower level offenses. By the way, side note, you know, as a fairly recent still, I guess it was six years ago, but as a somewhat recent law school graduate, I, I, I and, you know, some of those friends who are a little younger who have, who have been in law school, when you're, I can tell you now, when you're in a criminal law class in law school and you kind of praise broken windows policing and things like that, you're immediately tarred and feathered as a racist. Immediately. The whole thing is utterly egregious. Um, you know, stop and frisk was a policy that was also very popular under Giuliani, especially under Mayor Bloomberg in particular, I should say. But the point here is that we have reached an inflection point when it comes to law and order in America. Government has no more fundamental responsibility, none, than ensuring that its people can go about their lives without being in fear 
are being mugged, knifed, shot by lunatic madmen. That is government's responsibility is to prevent you, the sovereign citizen, from being subjected to that person's unmitigated wrath. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There is another massive, massive story going on right now, which, of course, is Elon Musk. Elon Musk is the wealthiest man in the world. He, he's somewhat of a mercurial figure. He is definitely somewhat of an enigma, we might say. He has, from what I can tell, I've never been part of kind of the cult of Elon Musk, but he definitely has like a real kind of cult-like following. I mean, like, y'all know what I'm talking about here. I mean, there are people that drive their Teslas that, you know, kind of dork out over every kind of SpaceX launch. I mean, like, you, you guys know who you are. Like, he has, like, a, a real kind of devoted following and has for a very long time now. And I'm not saying it's that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, he's a very, he is a very interesting man. He's, he's quirky. He oftentimes puts his money where his mouth is, which, which is where we're kind of going here. I'm thinking here of things like kind of shifting Tesla down to Austin, Texas, when Elon Musk famously had enough of kind of the left-wing California governance that he was subjecting himself and his employees to. Tesla now mostly operates, of course, out of out of, out of Austin. But the Elon's latest thing, and he's kind of presaged this for a while now. He's been kind of tweeting a lot about the problem of free speech and open discourse on Twitter in particular, perhaps kind of the social media platforms and big tech in general. It's not a new issue for him, but recently it really, 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 really did start to accelerate. So Elon first bought a 9% stake in Twitter, which is a big stake that immediately made him Twitter's largest shareholder. And they kind of offered him, as a result of that, to join the board. I think everyone assumed that this would be kind of Elon's way to kind of try to affect change from within by joining the board. He then declined. He declined the offer to join the board. I think a lot of us immediately suspected something was up. Turns out that what was up was that he ultimately made a $43 billion offer to just buy the entire company, <laughs> to take this publicly traded company and make it private again. Now, there's a lot to be said on that. Uh, as, of, as of now, where this standoff currently stands is that the Twitter board of directors has adopted a shareholder rights plan, which in kind of corporate law phraseology is referred to frequently as, the, as a quote-unquote poison pill. Um, this was actually kind of invented by, if I recall, uh, Wachtell Lipton Katz lawyers back in the 1980s. It was kind of considered a an innovation in, 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 in corporate law. The poison pill basically says that if a certain shareholder buys above a certain percentage of the company, um, you know, in this case, I think uh, what the board adopted was a 15% threshold. So Elon was, was currently only nine. They basically said if someone acquires 15% of the company, then what they will do is then they will sell additional shares to pre-existing shareholders at a discount, which will have the effect of diluting the ownership of the potential hostile bidder. So here, of course, the board is considering Elon Musk to be a potentially hostile acquirer, which is why they're acting in such defensive fashion here. 
Now, the stories over the past week or so, since kind of this all, this conflict escalates to the point where it currently is, there are kind of stories out there of Twitter internal employees who are just totally like beside themselves. They really don't want their company taken over by a free speech radical, you know, a crazy right winger. Elon Musk, for the record, is not a is not a crazy right winger. I think he's like a generally kind of libertarian leaning kind of leave me alone kind of guy. But he is very much not, you know, a, a, a rabid right wing theocrat or, or dictator or fascist. I mean, like, give me a freaking break. OK, this guy's like a serial entrepreneur, Tesla, SpaceX. You know, he's very much kind of cut from that entrepreneurial cloth. But. Elon is very motivated, of course, by bringing free speech back to Twitter. You know, there's a lot to be said about this issue. Again, it is currently unresolved as of this current time. I personally, I'm obviously, I join any others who value kind of free speech on online social media platforms and wishing Elon Musk nothing but the absolute best in his bid here. I hope that he does fully acquire Twitter. I think that would be amazing. Twitter famously for years and years has been a poorly run, poorly managed company. You know, I think a lot of people think that when a company goes public, it's kind of the natural culmination of a company's life cycle. You know, all the early investors, the seed investors, the venture capitalists are all going to cash out at that point. And that is how it works sometimes, to be clear. But Twitter in particular has consistently over the years failed to meet kind of, you know, Wall Street kind of earning profit estimates, things of that nature. It's a infamously poorly run company. And I think for that reason, I think a lot of folks kind of in in the financial press for years speculated that eventually someone would have to kind of come in and get it or that there have to be some kind of change to the status quo because shareholders were just simply not getting what they demanded. And at the end, at the end of the day, as anyone who owns any stock knows, the shareholders ultimately control, ultimately, the, the direction of the company. Obviously, it's kind of the C-suite and, and the board directors on a more day-to-day basis. But the fiduciary duty is ultimately to the shareholder. And under American corporate law doctrine, uh, you know, for better or for worse, this, this, this stuff gets frequently debated, of course. But under American corporate law doctrine, shareholder supremacy, shareholder primacy is the name of the game here. So if Elon Musk is really offering that much better of a deal than what the Twitter board can offer... And it does seem that way from all that I've read, that this is a substantially better deal than the status quo for Twitter shareholders. There really is only so long that they can go to prevent this from going to a full shareholder-wide vote. There, there are some kind of procedural quirks and some procedural things that they can do. But eventually, there will, even if it comes down to kind of litigation, if it comes down to kind of shareholder litigation – if it's really, really, really that much better of a deal, then I am skeptical of the board's ability to kind of prevent the shareholders from acting upon that for that long. But as it stands, as things currently at a standoff, a bit of a Mexican standoff, if you will. But I, I just can't, I cannot emphasize enough how outrageous the reaction was, not just from Twitter employees, but from lots of kind of left-leaning folks in general, you know, all across the Twitter sphere itself, to cable news and so forth. You know, I'm thinking here, I mean, there's a lot of, there's so many tweets to potentially flag here, but there was one tweet from Max Boot. So Max Boot is kind of an older generation neocon. You know, I think during kind of the Bush era, during those years, he really became known for kind of, uh, you know, advocating an aggressive, aggressively interventionist foreign policy. 
but he, like so many others from kind of the neocon camp, has really kind of gone back to his liberal roots in the post-Trump era. I would say he's now kind of a firmly left-of-center columnist, pundit at this point. So Max Boot, I, 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 I swear to you guys, this is not parody. I'm, I, I'm reading this verbatim. On April 14th, Max Boot tweeted, quote, I am frightened by the impact on society and politics if Elon Musk acquires Twitter. He seems to believe that on social media, anything goes. And here's the money. Here's the money quote, okay? Max Boot says, quote, for democracy to survive, we need more content moderation, not less. I mean, are you people kidding me? <laughs> I mean, these are the same people who, after the recent round of elections in Hungary, when the Hungarian people soundly reelected Prime Minister Orban and his National Conservative Fidesz Party, they actually kind of picked up two seats in the Hungarian parliament. These are the same people who went on Twitter and said, oh, Hungary votes against democracy without even the slightest semblance of self-awareness, without even the slightest indication that what they were saying was on its face an oxymoron. Again, Max Boot says, quote, for democracy to survive, we need more content moderation, not less. I mean, where did you people think? Where did you people come to learn about what quote unquote democracy is? Now, I don't believe in unvarnished democracy. I don't think anyone does. America is a constitutional republic. We have a very intricate and elaborate system, obviously, of separation of powers, federalism, checks and balances. Not, not going to do the whole kind of, you know, um, schoolhouse rock thing here on, on air with y'all. But I mean, America is not a pure democracy. It is, it is a constitutional republic with, with a durable rule of law. But the point here is that the folks who kind of lost their mind during the Trump presidency, the folks like Max Boot, who succumbed to kind of the worst possible version of TDS, of Trump derangement syndrome. For them to kind of now wail, again, the same people that thought that President Trump was the biggest threat to democracy out there, he's an authoritarian, fascist, Putin stooge, you guys know how this goes. For those kind of folks to now say that democracy is at stake because Elon Musk wants to use a modest percentage of his enormous net worth to buy Twitter and restore free speech to a platform. I mean, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> at, like a, at like a very, very, very fundamental level here. What is so terrible about not quashing about not boulderizing and not just kind of ultimately eliminating from the modern day town square which is what social media is what is so terrible about just letting it all out there is that what liberals pretended to believe neoliberals right liberals left liberals i thought they all believed in that you're listening to the josh hammer show we'll be right back As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Twitter here. What they're really doing is kind of essentially acting like the old Soviets did. You know, you know who is not a fan of free speech? 
Well, a lot of regimes, obviously, have not been a fan of free speech in the history of government and the history of human civilization. But what a regime that definitely stands out as not being a particular fan of the idea of free speech was, of course, the old Soviet Union. It's a good time to kind of think about what the Soviet Union's successor, which is, of course, Russia, the modern Russian Federation, what they're up to right now. Because we did a whole episode you know, a couple months ago at the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a month and a half ago or so, maybe it was, kind of explaining to you, I was trying to explain to you guys how this is a difficult situation, I think, for a lot of Westerners to understand. That this very, very, very simple-minded idea of grotesque retrograde authoritarianism on the one hand versus kind of like true kind of Western-style liberalism was severely overstated. And, you know, look, I've said it many times, I'll say it again and again, Putin's invasion was wrong. It was ultimately wrong. The events and years leading up to it are very complicated. Part of that was the point of the last episode we did. But his invasion was wrong, obviously. But if you look at over the past month and a half now, it seems that this hasn't gone as well for Russia as a lot of people thought. You know, the the images that we saw out of Buka and some of the other towns in Ukraine that appear to indicate mass murder, that appear to indicate uh, wanton infliction of, of ruinous pain on innocent civilians, these sort of things don't happen unless it is going poorly for the Russians. If it had gone better for the Russians, they could have obviously just gone in. I, mean, I think Putin probably thought that he would get Kiev, Kiev, whatever we're calling it these days. I think he probably thought that he would get Kiev in a matter of days, like less than a week, honestly. But nonetheless, you know, a couple weeks ago or so, after Putin had kind of troops effectively 360 degrees around Kiev for a little while, they were not able to kind of infiltrate all the way to the city center. He eventually kind of took a lot of his forces from there and redeployed them to the east, to the Donbass region, you know, down to, the, down to the Sea of Azov, kind of that region that kind of connects the Donbass on the Ukrainian-Russian border down to the Crimean Peninsula, which, of course, Putin seized back in 2014, back under the presidency of Barack Obama. Of course, you notice here that these things happen to happen under Democratic presidents, which, by the way, is a whole other side topic here. One of my favorite writers in the world... Lee Smith, a brilliant, brilliant mind, had this really kind of excellent essay for Tabel magazine explaining how ludicrous it is that in Vienna, during the negotiations for the Iran nuclear deal, Russia is currently serving as the intermediary. Those talks are going on like right now, that Russia is actually currently serving as the intermediary in Vienna between the U.S. and Iran because Iran refuses to talk to the U.S. directly. So at the same time that we're basically punting to Putin in Vienna on the Iran deal, um, you know, we're, we're talking about like how he's like how he's Hitler 2.0. Biden had that ridiculous press conference in Poland where he called for regime change and he quickly had to eat his words. I, I mean, to put it mildly, the United States has not necessarily, uh, how shall we say this, has not necessarily kind of looked you know, uh, the the look of a of, of a strong leader. And that obviously comes down to President Biden himself, who is just a fundamentally weak leader who probably is senile and all the things people are saying with him. I happen to think it's all true. 
But to go back to the chessboard in, in, in Russia and Ukraine. So a couple of weeks ago, Putin kind of took a lot of his forces from Kiev and redeployed them to the east, redeployed them to the Donbass to try, basically try to connect this land bridge down to the Crimean Peninsula. Of course, any, as any student of European history knows, the perennial quest for Russia has been to achieve a warm water port. Uh, obviously, St. Petersburg, far in the north, is not a warm water port. Tragically, from Russia's perspective, of course, Turkey actually through the Bosphorus Strait has a chokehold under kind of the the um, has a chokehold under the Black Sea. So this has been Russia's problem for a very long time, but they're trying to kind of solidify that now. And as it stands, you know, I saw I, I saw I saw a very interesting tweet that basically made it sound like so I, May seventh, May seventh of nineteen forty five, is the day that that Russia every year commemorates its annual victory parades for victory in World War II. The Soviet Union at the time, obviously, uh, you know, fought with the with, with the U.S., the British, the French, etc., to kind of defeat uh, fascism in, in, in Germany and Italy and uh, Imperial Japan and so forth. Okay. So May 7th is kind of a big annual parade day. It was like a big kind of victorious kind of celebration of Russian pride and Russian nationalism. So I saw this interesting commentary from a friend of mine that suggested that the escalation of Putin's offensive in the Eastern Front in the Donbass region, as we're recording this, fighting is really kind of breaking up in Mariupol and places over there kind of near the Sea of Azov. It, it, it seems to me, and, this, and, and from this friend's perspective, it seems to kind of most Western observers who kind of really have their kind of eyes to the ground there, that Putin is now escalating this in Eastern, in Eastern Ukraine with the idea of ending it and ideally getting out by May 7th. So that he can basically kind of get out, declare victory in time for this big annual kind of Russian pride parade on May 7th. I don't know if that's true. It's just one idea as to what you're seeing when you see kind of this movement of Russian troops from Kiev to Eastern Ukraine and, you know, the escalation of recent fighting in that particular part of Ukraine. Another possibility, of course, is that this conflict is just, not going to end, that it, that'll just go on as a de facto stalemate for a while now. That's actually really not the biggest deal in the world. There are any number of conflict zones the world over where the borders are disputed by the sides, where it doesn't necessarily have like a crisp black line delineating borders on a map or an atlas or anything. I'm thinking here of regions like Kashmir, which is disputed between India and Pakistan, Perhaps the most famous example in the world, obviously, the West Bank, what Israel refers to as Judea and Samaria, where the Palestinian Authority has, um, uh, you know, a lot of government authority in, in parts of Judea and Samaria, but it obviously is not kind of a sovereign entity with full nation state status and all, and all the diplomatic niceties that that entails. So I can easily foresee a situation in which the Russia-Ukraine conflict basically just becomes that. In fact, in many ways, that actually really has been what's been happening on the Crimean Peninsula since Putin went in in February to March of 2014. Crimea, I think, under international law, which you know is usually just worth the paper that it's written on, under quote unquote international law, I, I you know what Putin did was illegitimate in 2014. So I think for a lot of people, obviously, who kind of are sticklers for that, they will say that Ukraine still has Crimea. But what does that mean, obviously, 
if, you know, on a day-to-day basis, as far as like who has the actual force on the ground, who the institutions of power are, if they're controlled by Russia. Now, look, I, I, I have not been to Crimea, okay? I, 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 I have never physically been to Crimea. I couldn't tell you exactly what it feels like there on the ground. The point is that it's basically been disputed for the past eight years now, since 2014. And I think it's entirely plausible that could be what happens in eastern Ukraine for a very long time. Now, if I were Vladimir Zelensky, okay, if I were leading Ukraine at this point, and you've now seen for the past two months, you've now seen NATO and the U.S., and the EU, the UN, you've seen all of them basically kind of give you some weaponry, but definitely not sending boots on the ground, definitely not sending anyone to kind of definitively help your cause. You know, I don't really know exactly what Zelensky's game plan is here, because again, you know, it's not like he's made a robust effort during the time that he's been leading Ukraine over the past few years to kind of go into Crimea and decisively kind of retake Crimea from Putin. So it seems to me with the Crimean example that Zelensky is willing to de facto acknowledge, you know, lawyers would say not necessarily de jour, which is a fancy way of saying formally, legally. So not de jour acknowledge, but de facto acknowledge Putin's sovereignty over Crimea. So if Zelensky is willing to acknowledge that, or at least quasi acknowledge that, I don't really understand why he wouldn't, in theory, be willing to countenance some sort of other concession, obviously in exchange for something else. Okay. It wouldn't be a unilateral concession. It obviously would be in exchange for something else. But this idea that Ukraine is, you know, you know is going to fight a hard war to defend every single acre of its eastern territory strikes me as implausible. Again, that is not the situation on the ground in Crimea. I find it very hard to believe that will be the situation on the ground uh, in the Donbass, in Mariupol. Mariupol, where uh, as of the time that we're recording this, it's apparently this kind of massive manufacturing facility where there are a few Ukrainians left defending. If you believe the media reports and it's you know you should take everything that you that you hear from this region with a huge grain of salt that was kind of the part of our of our last monologue on this two months ago obviously a moving story lots of moving parts here we will no doubt come back to in a future episode but for now please go to apple Podcasts, spotify wherever you get your podcast leave us five stars and a generous review we will be most grateful i'm josh hammer we'll see you next time